Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we are going to be reviewing new albums from death metal legend Slayer. Boy, I can't wait to play that <laughs> record. <laughs> and we should have a parental advisory <laughs> sticker on this show. Uh, indeed. And we've also got one of the most talked about new bands of the year, White Whale, out with their debut album from uh, beautiful Lawrence, Kansas, a record that a lot of people are talking about. We're going to tell you why you need to know about it. Plus, we have got to cover this story because it's ubiquitous this week in the media. MTV is 25 years old. As of Tuesday, they're 25. It was 25 years ago that they launched this channel. We're going to do it a little differently than all the talking heads you've seen in the media and all the obligatory, the 25 greatest moments in 25 years of MTV. (laughs) But before we get to any of that, we have a tradition here at Sound Opinions. Whenever a new city adds the show, we play a song by a band that epitomizes that city There is no better band than this one. That, of course, is the Ramones, one of the greatest songs in the history of rock and roll. Sheena is a punk rocker on Sound Opinions, now airing on WFUV. All right. Fordham University up in the Bronx. We're, we're glad to be here. But first, we have an 800-pound gorilla over here in the corner of the room, Jim. It's, uh, <laughs> it's called the Silver Anniversary of Music Television. MTV is celebrating its 25th anniversary this month. We are going to look at it from a number of different angles in the next few minutes. First, we want to hear from some of the viewers. They say that MTV 
speaks to the demographic between the ages of 12 and 24. That is, that is like what no they are other selling. television medium. They're selling that to advertisers, yes, 12 indeed. to 24. Our team went out to the Pitchfork Music Festival in Chicago last weekend. People came from all over the country to go there. These people who love music. We talked to a bunch of people in their 20s to see what they think about MTV. I am Matt Herding. I am 21, and I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yeah, I spent a couple of years, like around the 6th, 7th grade, where I watched it religiously for kind of disturbing amounts of time looking back. That was like right when I very first started listening to music. But I mean, they don't really play music anymore, and the music they play is pretty god-awful. I'll, I'll watch it for like the terrible reality shows that are television junk food. When it was the 80s, did I remember the birth of MTV? The impact was it like poured in music that I'd never heard before. I've kind of felt like I was linked to other people my own age. There was just all this stuff that we were unaware of. I mean, you know, we had no music stores. If we did, it was only like at a supermarket, things like that. I lived in a small town. And so MTV was a way to like connect with this whole larger music culture that you didn't even know existed. And, but just as quickly, once they sort of sussed out what they thought everybody wanted, that sort of vanished. I don't know, we're both 21. I think we really like sort of missed out like on the time period when people were doing like really creative things with videos and they were like shown to a wide audience. Like my first exposure to music videos was like watching Beavis and Butthead when I was a little kid and they used to have the music videos that they'd talk over and I don't know, it set the standards a little high though because they always did really interesting ones and then when I started watching the real ones I was completely disappointed. I mean, now I don't know when the last time I actually saw a music video on MTV was. Like, I think it's great if you want to watch, like, you know, young people get drunk and make out with each other, but I mean, I don't think it has anything to do with music anymore. Sonia, Chicago. My relationship with MTV was more physical than aural. Most of the great sort of people who you remember from early MTV, or at least that I do, Michael Jackson and Madonna, Prince, they were all dancers as well. Really good dancers. Like, Michael Jackson got all these mad props from Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. They were really into him and would be like, oh, yeah, he's bringing back dancing, you know. It is it is kind of a weird thing that for a little while it really promoted dancing, but now you can be, you know, an Ashley Simpson who doesn't really dance. They just give you two moves that they cut together, and then it looks kind of like a dance. There's very few music stars now, I think, who really do dance, except for, like, an usher, which is too bad because that's one of the best things, I think, about videos is the visual element. I'm Jeremy Schmidt. I am 23 and from Chicago. I think MTV has been important, or at least was important, because so many of the bands that we're watching like now or we're watching or like listening to five years ago, I feel like grew up on couches, stone, just like really mesmerized by being able to finally watch, like have something going along with their music. Just like fascinated these people sitting on couches, and they eventually became, you know, the new, the next generation of rock people. My name is Carl. I'm 20 years old. I'm from Columbus. Uh, the major thing now with like MTV, how it affects the music, it's more so of like selling music as part of like a specific lifestyle. Like reality television shows, they'll have music in the background, which will express some sort of like association with that situation or with that event that you go through as a 16-year-old girl or whatever. My name is Adam. I'm 23. I'm from Miami, Florida. I feel like they have so little impact on music these days that it doesn't even matter. They used to show music on MTV, right? I'm Wyatt. There's really not that much musical quality left over. Launch.com's free, so that's where I get my music videos when I go and see those. 
You know, it's funny to hear these 20-year-old kids talking about MTV as, as a nostalgia item in their lives. Uh, but it is sort of nostalgic. I mean, let's face it, August 1... 1981 was was the inaugural broadcast of MTV, and that's, you know, 25 years ago. It's a, that, that is a nostalgic time. The fact is right now, and many people I, I think aren't even aware of this, MTV is owned by this huge corporate media juggernaut, Viacom. Viacom is to media what Clear Channel has been to radio and uh, what Ticketmaster is to the ticket-selling industry. It's a monopoly. Oh, yeah. And it's worth $10 billion, according to Kagan Researchers, one of these business analysis firms. That's big bucks, and it's still growing because revenue, it was up almost 9% from a year ago. I mean, it's, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, think about in, in 1989, MTV was worth $150 million. Today, it's worth $1.3 billion. So despite the fact that you know, a lot of these kids are talking about, well, it's maybe not as relevant to their lives. It's it's worth way more than it ever was. And today. it reaches more people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it started out with a couple of million in its viewership. Mm-hmm. It's now 442.9 million households worldwide. Yeah, I mean, think about it. 25 years ago, it started, you, you had to go to northern New Jersey. Yeah. to watch MTV in August of 1981. Well, and today, sure. 440 no, million Literally, I, I grew up in Jersey City, yeah. and I had to go to, to my friend's house in Maywood, New Jersey, <laughs> and we would sit there, and we were, we were music geeks, right? So this idea that there was now going to be a 24-hour-a-day television network that was going to show us music videos was revolutionary. Yeah. Unfortunately, then we started seeing Michael... Jackson videos and <laughs> 45,000 videos though Jim My that's God. what they I claim mean, that, they have... that, that's an amazing number of videos but they show three made. of them yes, why, why yeah. do they show three of them in between the reality program yeah exactly but, but we're, that's getting that's all getting ahead of ourselves we, we went first to a professor who happens to be at Fordham I mean it was just synchronicity that we, we linked up with Professor Paul Levinson who's the chair of the Department of Communications and Media Studies up at Fordham and he's got some thoughts just about how MTV fits into the pop spectrum Paul welcome to Sound Opinions Happy to be here. Glad to have you. And we're talking MTV, and uh, noticed on your blog the other day, Paul, that you offered MTV on its 25th anniversary a ringing endorsement. Let me just quote back some lines to you. MTV's success helped end network domination of TV, vindicated Thomas A. Edison after a century, and was one of two signal achievements of a major shaper of late 20th century popular culture. Tell, tell us why, what you mean by that. Well, each of those uh, three developments, I think, are extremely important. To begin with uh, the network domination of television, the networks were created actually for radio. Cable had been introduced in the 1950s as a way of getting, again, network television into areas of the country that were too remote to receive broadcast signals. Uh, In 1981, Uh, MTV was launched, uh, and what it did is did not just convey network programming. Instead, it came up with something genuinely new. And uh, right around that same time, CNN and HBO also, in their own ways, began doing things that were very original on cable. And in retrospect, that spelled the beginning of the end for the network domination of television, which I think is is very good news uh, because we now have a much greater range of choices. Uh, This is the way television should be. And uh, it was MTV that really led that charge. So you're talking about that impact just strictly in terms of the way the business of television was. 
That's right. It had been said that television makes us into a passive society. All that started changing in the 1980s, and specifically on August 1st, 1981, with the inauguration of MTV. All right. Well, I have a feeling we're going to agree with you on the first of your three key points here. Uh, the next one is that is that you think or, or you note that historically Edison, when he invented the phonograph, originally wanted a visual element. In the realm of communication, he invented the phonograph in 1877. His first thought about the phonograph is, hmm, this would be a good way of recording telephone conversations. But uh, initially and continuing throughout the history of the phonograph, it became primarily a medium that recorded music and uh, contributed enormously to the popular culture in that way. Well, uh, less than a decade after Edison invented the phonograph, he perfected a motion picture process. And his first thought about that was, once again, hmm, this would be a good adjunct to my phonograph. You know, people will be able to see images that go along with the music that people are listening to on the phonograph. In the short run, Edison was way off. The motion picture process instead became the vehicle for cinema, movies. And again, it wasn't until MTV in 1981 that finally this marriage of image and sound that Edison had envisioned became uh, consummated. Do you think, Professor Levinson, though, that he was slightly biased? I mean, wasn't Edison partially deaf? Maybe he wanted pictures because he really didn't care about the music. <laughs> it's possible. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, Edison, in many ways, was a very cantankerous, almost crackpot kind of person. Yeah, I don't think he would have liked Britney Spears. Uh, well, I don't see how anybody could like her the way she's been behaving recently. But <laughs> on the other hand, a few years ago, uh, Edison probably would have enjoyed watching her at least. Yeah, yeah. All right. Point number three in your opening statement in your blog was that one of two signal achievements of a major shaper of the late 20th century was, uh, was Bob Pittman and his uh, involvement not only in the creation of MTV but in the creation of America Online in the 90s. It was really Pittman who led the way in saying, look, th this can be something that people can watch 24-7 on a cable uh, station. It was his vision more than anyone else's, and I think he deserves credit for that. And then he took online communication, you know, began uh, developing America Online, and you know, the rest is history. Well, it's kind of interesting because his, uh, his second idea seems to be usurping the first one in some ways. It seems to me that MTV is in many ways being eclipsed nowadays for the attention span of young people by the internet and by things like YouTube. What would you say? Oh, I would agree with that completely. And uh, things that are successful in the popular culture usually have very short tenures. And yes, I think MTV has in many ways outlived its usefulness precisely because now when you want to see you know, a group doing a video, right, you, you, can, you can log on to YouTube. I mean, you know, there are videos on MySpace, you know, has almost 100 million people. And that provides a much more immediate and satisfying gratification than sitting more passively and watching cable television. We're, we're talking to Professor Paul Levinson of Fordham. He's the chair of the Department of Communications and Media Studies. I have to say, Paul, when I first he heard Pittman speak, it was in the tenure between MTV 
and AOL, he was running for Warner Brothers, the uh, theme parks. Pittman's main message was not one of vision of opening up the internet for AOL or of vision in opening up a new way of experiencing music. It was about selling. It was the first time I'd ever heard the words corporate synergy and advertising synergy and how there was going to be no real distinction between the programs on his MTV and the ads. And in fact, the videos were advertisements. And and what a brilliant thing. He got the record companies to spend millions to make the videos. (laughs) And then he got programming for free. It was all about advertising. It was not about culture. So when you say it's a signal achievement of popular culture, I wonder what you mean. Well, first of all, I can't help thinking again, you know, money for nothing, chicks for free, you know, when you're saying what Pittman did. Yeah. Um, But I actually don't distinguish between popular culture and corporate culture because it's all really part of the same mix. From the point of view of the human being who listens to a piece of music and enjoys it, who reads something, whether online or in print, who goes to the movies, watches television, downloads something from YouTube, the corporate involvement is irrelevant. As rock critics, I think that's where we would disagree with you. I mean, I would I would say naively and idealistically that rock and roll was one of the last great forums for truth. And it stopped a war in Vietnam, if you want to get all hippie about it, and still r- remains one of the most vibrant outlets today for dissension of the war in Iraq. And yeah, sure, it's all corporate. And, you know, I, I know. And the first time you sing a song, it may be authentic. And then the second time you're repeating it and acting. But, but I mean, rock and roll was not that. And he corrupted it to become that. Uh, no, I don't, I don't agree at all. First of all, okay. who, who, it was Columbia Records, right, who put out Dylan's you know, great albums. Yeah. Uh, the Columbia Records back in the 1960s was a pretty big corporation. To some extent, I do agree there is a paradox. There's always been what I call the paradox of protest music, where in order to get your protest across, you have to make use of some of the very vehicles that you're protesting about. But the fact is... By and large, rock and roll from its outset has been tied into uh, corporations, has been in bed with money, and that hasn't stopped it from doing great stuff, you know, starting with Alan Freed. You know, I agree to an extent with what you're saying, Professor, but I also think that with MTV, it very quickly became from this sort of wide open forum for artists to express themselves in a new way to one where it was intimately tied with the four or five or six big major labels that ran the the music industry, essentially, and it became the outlet for the million-dollar video. And if you didn't have that kind of money to make a video with those kind of technical specifications and the high-name director and the high-gloss star at the center of it, you're pretty much excluded from MTV pretty quickly on. Well, I agree with you about that, but I think by shaking things up, by making music uh, more exciting, uh, even with catering just to people like Madonna and Dire Straits, I think that Pittman and MTV also opened up music so that people like Radiohead and Tom York, uh, people like Sir John Stevens, you know, all kinds of people with unusual sounds were able to find, you know, a voice for their uh, music. There's no doubt that if you look at it right now, it's no longer on the cutting edge. You know, it's uh, it's, it's not quite a dinosaur, but, uh, you know, it's almost like what happened with the Ed Sullivan show after a while, where it became almost, you know, a parody of itself. But back in the 80s, I think it's just what music uh, needed. That's interesting. So Pittman has these big innovations, and then they become... Because really, I mean, AOL... Anybody who signs up to AOL now is kind of stupid, right? Of course. Right, and and anybody who watches MTV... (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
Well, Professor, that's great. I mean, this is a pleasure getting your perspective. I think we agree on more things than we thought we would. Well, that's okay. Even when we disagree, it's good talking to you. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're just starting this examination of MTV, the good, the bad, and the ugly. When we come back, we're going to hear from another guest, and then Greg and I are going to say what we really think about it as a force in rock and roll. So stay tuned. it. Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour stereo video music channel. A new concept is born. The best of TV combined with the best of radio. Now, starting right now, you'll never look at music the same way again. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. We are in the midst of a discussion about the 25th anniversary of MTV. We're going to hear from one more guest, and then Greg and I are going to give our thoughts about music on television. We want to say hello to our colleague, Ken Tucker, who is the uh, pop music critic at Fresh Air. He's also editor-at-large at Entertainment Weekly and the author of uh, Kissing Bill O'Reilly, Roasting Miss Piggy, 100 Things to Love and Hate About Television. Ken, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you very much. In addition to being a music critic and a TV critic, it's where, where it came to you because you have both of those credentials covered, and you did write about MTV in your book, and you have given thought to MTV. So uh, here we are looking at it at 25. It seems like just the other day we were looking at it at 20, but we wanted to come to you for your thoughts about, about how it stacks up. Yeah, I think it stacks up in, in, in a peculiar pile of things. The original idea of presenting music videos, I thought was an absolutely terrible idea. The whole idea of literalizing song lyrics, of having to make little movies to advertise your song, I thought just trivialized an awful lot of good music uh, when MTV first came along. I mean, I, the image is forever lodged in my head of the Eurythmics' sweet dreams with these cows standing in a field. <laughs> right, right, right. I just, you know, I just hated all so, so many music videos 25 years ago, right from the start, and pretty much so today. Because <laughs> fundamentally, Ken, I mean, it takes away the power of imagination. When we would sit and listen to an album 
pre-video, the movies we could play in our heads might have been much stronger than what some art director, not even the artist who made the song, gave us. As I say, any time you actually uh, put a, an image in front of somebody, that's the way they, they'll begin to think about that song. And with MTV, as the years went on, you eventually had music that was created to become a video. I mean, something like Cisco's The Thong Song. I mean, that's a piece of music that existed to, be, to film a lot of women wearing thongs, you know? It's, <laughs> it's just you know, for, for no other reason at all. Yeah, not that there's anything wrong with that. Well, and that sort of set the template for the next 10 years. If the hair metal videos with the women in cages in the 80s set the tempo for that era, then you had the thong song setting the tempo for just about every hip-hop and R&B video we've seen for the last decade, it seems like. That's right. I mean, and the interesting thing about MTV in its evolution is that, in a way, corporately, they came to almost agree with what we're talking about because they had to put in more scripted programming or reality programming. It wasn't holding people's eyeballs in front of the set long enough to make it a worthwhile commercial po- proposition. Right, right. Well, Ken, how do you see this as a cultural force, though? I mean, it, it could be argued that within 10 years, it was the most important force in determining the popularity of music in this country. How do you see it now in in that context? I mean, how important is it as a cultural force 25 years on? I think 25 years on, it doesn't sell records very much. I think that uh, the Internet is so much more important now in the dissemination of of songs. Um, And, you know, because MTV doesn't play videos anymore. It's, you know, more about the Osbournes and My Sweet Sixteen and presentation of what rock music's audience is. Uh, it's It's all about the audience as opposed to the artist. Are they still at all cutting edge? I guess one of their claims to fame is that they were like a step ahead, however dubious the concepts. And the one Um, brilliant innovation of Pittman is that he realized that MTV, and he said this from the very beginning, mm -hmm. MTV would have to completely blow itself up every year and a half or Mm -hmm. two years and reinvent itself. He built that into the model. Right. Is that still going on, Ken? Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, it it does reinvent itself. We wouldn't see such a piece of uh, wealth porn as uh, Super Sweet 16 five years ago. I mean, I would say you shouldn't be able to see it now, but, yeah. um, you know, Pittman, that, that is an interesting business model that you have to start from the ground up every few years, but it's more of a kind of evolutionary thing. Um, you know, there are things about MTV that I do like. I, I mean, when, when TRL uh, first started in the afternoon with Carson Daly in late 90s. To me, that was sort of American Bandstand all over again. It had a certain innocence to it. I, I, you know, I love to tune in and see screaming teenage girls and see them, you know, swoon over the Backstreet Boys in Britney. Um, sure, sure. That moment on Total Request Live was like the best thing in their life. Yeah, and and there was a kind of innocence and and dare I say it in the context of MTV, a kind of purity that you didn't see on the rest of the channel. Um, so there there are always this kind of innovations that sort of pop up for a little while, but they never have much of a shelf life, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Have, have they got another twenty five years in them? I think they probably do have another 25 years. of. I mean, if they can lure people into seeing these shows that they have now aimed at teens, that there's always going to be. I mean, I, I actually wrote that Laguna Beach, I think, has a very interesting style in which it's filmed. Um, I, I wrote that if John Cassavetes was 20 years old and was handed some money, he'd probably make Laguna Beach. Uh, <laughs> and Kids will now watch that instead of the OC. I mean, the yeah. OC's ratings have plummeted. Mm-hmm. How do you stand on the question of, and, and you know, this is an interesting one for any parent, how much of this is reflecting 
what's going on in young people's lives and how much of it is actually leading and sort of uh, affecting behavior? I think to a certain extent it reflects it. You know, certainly something like uh, Super Sweet 16. I mean, those are those are mini documentaries about, you know, how awful people spend their money throwing awful birthday parties and but it but it plants ideas in people's heads uh, whether it's whether it's the young audience or the parents who 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 see it um you know i think at this point the real world is something that i would try and keep any young person away from you know any child in my house would not be allowed to to watch the real world if i could help it as i sound like a cranky parent I am a cranky old dad of a nine-year-old. Greg is a cranky year, <laughs> cranky old dad of a fourteen and ten-year-old. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. Are, are, is this what MTV was designed to do, and are we falling into its trap? Uh, yes, I say, as the cranky father of a sixteen-year-old. You know, it's it's always about alienating your parents. That's you know, it, it, you could say that that's that's the closest connection to real rock and roll MTV has. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, Ken. It's it's a pleasure to have you on. Well, thanks so much. I'm a fan of the show. Thank you. Thank I you, Ken. Ken. Thanks. Ken Tucker has a very skeptical viewpoint about MTV. In fact, I was surprised to hear Ken say he saw almost no value whatsoever in MTV right from the start. (laughs) And I have to say, I mean, I am, Jim, you and I are very skeptical about MTV, if not cynical, about its impact on on the music industry. We've been holding back because Uh, we wanted to get some diversity of opinion before we took over. And I think I know where you're going to go. We we just heard where Ken Tucker's going to go, which is basically, I want to blow up the whole thing. But I got to say, there's a few things that I want to say in MTV favor before we start uh, weighing in here. First of all, I want to go back to what that young woman said at, at the top of the segment where she was talking about the impact of the dancing on the videos on her life. And I think for a lot of young people who saw these performers in a new light, in a way they had not seen them before. Obviously, it was only a record when you hear Michael Jackson's Thriller, but when you pair it with that video, it's a new thing. And I think MTV sort of brought that home to a generation of young people. I left her considerable protest, though. I mean, they did not immediately rush to embrace black pop music. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There was that controversy. But, you know, that brings up another good point. MTV was vilified for not airing more black artists, especially in its early years. But that all changed in 1986 when Yo! MTV Raps came on the air. And i got to say, Dr. Dre and Ed Lover were two very influential VJs, you know, before anybody mm-hmm. really knew what a VJ was. I think they were programming the best radio station in America at that time. And they, more than anyone, brought these artists into white suburbia. And again, that had some really negative impact later on. It sort of became the the fetishizing of this ghetto culture in, in a sort of a really creepy way. But early on, the golden age of hip-hop, you saw people like Della Soul and Public Enemy and LL Cool J getting their music out to a much broader audience than they could have ever imagined if, if they had had to rely on strictly commercial radio to get it out there. Yeah. MTV really broke that wall down. No, that's absolutely true, Greg. And, and, and there have always been moments on MTV that have been great. Uh, usually they have, however, been ghettoized because Yo! MTV Raps was a very specific show, right. as was Headbangers Ball, which championed metal, like we're going to review the Slayer record later, right. as was 120 Minutes, which was the alternative showcase. And little by little, as MTV aged, those showcases for interesting music videos disappeared. But my objections with MTV are even broader. I mean, I think that there's the first very notion of 
is rock video a good idea? I mean, one of the charms, one of the powers, the timeless powers of music is that you can hear a piece of music and the movie that I create in my head is infinitely more powerful than something that no matter how great a video that somebody could show me. You know what I mean? And it's different from yours. And as music fans, when we talk, what we share is those images, not the one that's force-fed us. There's also that objection I raised with Professor Levinson about, you know, MTV was designed to sell from the beginning. Look, I'm not going to be all naive and on my high horse here. Commerce has always been a part of rock and roll. People talk about the Beatles as pure artists. Hey, Beatles boots were for sale at the back of every magazine and Beatles haircuts and everybody dressed like the Beatles. So, you know, rock and roll can't be separated from commerce, but at its best, it's something kind of pure and immediate and it explodes. The best moments of rock on television have always been the most live, whether it's Elvis Costello losing it and getting angry on Saturday Night Live or the Beatles on Sullivan and Elvis on Sullivan, the Rolling Stones, you know, they're they're, they're spontaneous. They can't be controlled. And MTV, when you think about what it could have done in presenting music on television, has fallen so far short of that. I agree that I think it was actually a good idea, very poorly executed. It was a great idea. I, yeah. I, think, I think there were some brilliant moments of, of video. I, I think some of the videos, and as you said, I'm not, I'm not so worried about the director's kind of obscuring or changing the artist's vision. It was like an interpretation of a song by a talented director like Hype Williams or Spike Jones. I was perfectly willing to allow them to interpret a song in the way they saw it fit. I just saw it as another piece of art. Do kids who love Spike Jones's version of Buddy Holly by Weezer, do they still have their own reading of what that song is about, or can they not separate it from Happy Days? They may not be, you know, but that's their problem for watching MTV a thousand times a day and, <laughs> and, and having that embedded in their mind and not having their own imagination. Well, You're having their ima- allowing their imaginations to be stolen from them. You know, even as recently as, as Missy Elliott's videos, I think those have been really well-done videos. You know, go back to the days of Peter Gabriel's videos, the early Michael Jackson stuff that I referenced earlier, the early Prince stuff. Those were really, to me, an example of how good MTV could have been. What I think they've done is they've created this incredibly lucrative business where now every video has got to cost a million dollars to make, and it's the same video over and over again. I mean, one of the reasons that mainstream hip-hop has become so played out in a lot of ways is because all the videos look alike. They all have Cristal in them. They all have a bunch of bikini-clad vixens in them. They all have a guy rolling down the street in a Lexus. That's the best you can do. But, but look, it's a complicated question. We could go on about it over and over again. We are music fans, and the fact is, today, there's not a lot of good music on MTV. We can argue about how much of it there's ever been, but today, it's not about music at all. And I think that they knew this from the beginning. <laughs> you know, I just keep going back to one of the most frightening speeches I've ever heard was Robert Pittman talking about his goals in starting MTV. I don't believe the word music was ever mentioned. Mm-hmm. It was demographic for advertising sell, and sell, sell. corporate synergy. And, and MTV has always been most successful at selling MTV and co-opting messages. So when it debuted on August 1st, 1981, it wasn't Pittman, but it was his partner, John Lack, who overtoned the first words spoken on MTV. And it was, ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll, which is ironic because... MTV's never been rock. I mean, it's been (laughs) pop. It certainly is pop in the sense of mass popularity and massive sales and mainstream tastes. But it's never been rock and roll in the sense that, to me, when we call ourselves the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're talking about a form of music 
can be many different styles. It can be Slayer. It can be hip-hop. It can be indie rock. But but that's about excitement, rebellion, and individualism. MTV's never been about those things. And the first video they showed, of course, was by this band, which I think is the only place to wrap up this conversation. The ultimate irony to me is they didn't pay attention to what the song was about. <laughs> The video had been around for two years before MTV debuted, Mm -hmm. and it had been shown on Top of the Pops, now extinct in the UK. It was an ironic clip. If you recall, this video ends with a television being blown up. This is not a pro-video song. It's an anti-video song. Mm -hmm. The lyrics say, video came and broke your heart. (laughs) You know, they're evoking the sound of, of radio and saying that it's been killed by this new medium. I'm talking, of course, about Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles, which is where MTV started, paying no attention whatsoever to the fact that Trevor Horn and Jeff Downs, who are interesting characters, I mean, it was this little synth-pop duo that they put together. I mean, these were interesting guys. You know, Trevor Horn, the vocalist and the instrumentalist was Jeff Downs. They'd go on to be part of Yes, and Trevor Horn would go on to be a pretty significant producer, working with people like Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Seal and, you know, even Leanne Rhymes, for God's sake. <laughs> but this whole song, again, is about bemoaning radio, the mystery of that little transistor thing that you had under your pillow at night and being replaced by this new medium. And they're saying, we can't rewind. We've gone too far. They're sad about this. They're bummed out about it. Didn't matter to MTV. Had the word video in it. We're going to play it. In fact, we're going to start the whole damn network with it. I heard you on the wireless back in 52 Lying awake intently tuning in on you If I was young it didn't stop you coming through the buggles happy birthday mtv (laughs) video killed the radio star and we're going to be back on sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media with reviews of the new albums by slayer and white whale as well as a desert island jukebox pick from me
Drifting through the flood, rejecting good for goodness sake. She told him once you were invincible, had to see it's your command. He answered nothing here, it's permanent, we're just temporary now. That's a little bit of We're Just Temporary, Ma'am, a song from the first album, debut album, by a group called White Whale from the uh, rock and roll hotbed of Lawrence, Kansas. <laughs> Lawrence, Kansas is actually a pretty big college town and a big uh, stop on the indie rock touring circuit. This is a mini supergroup, such as it is in the indie rock realm, uh, with members of uh, Butterglory, The High Burning Fire, and Get Up Kids, probably the most famous of those bands, uh, contributing bassist Rob Pope. But the voice you hear there is uh, Butterglory singer Matt Suggs. Hard to believe that guy is not some Ray Davies wannabe from South London. Very English, very fey in that particular track. The name of the record is WW1, World War One. Wait, Whale One. Listen to that. I'm I sure mean, they're, they're, uh, they're going for both at the same time. Epic, so. in, epic in scale. Think about epic that. Epic and White Whale, a yeah. reference to the, the war to end all wars, a reference to the greatest novel in the English language possibly in Melville's epic Moby Dick. I mean, this band thinks about really large oceanic uh, images in its music. We heard some stuff about the sea, and there's some yep. a lot of lyrics about admirals and uh, yep. sailing ships. And So needless to say, an epic uh, start for uh, White Whale's career. This is their first album. Let's hear some more of the music before we get into a review of this debut record. The track we're going to play is actually the track that kicks off the record. It's called uh, Nine Good Fingers. It gives you a sense of the cinematic sweep of Matt Suggs and Company. This is White Whale, Nine Good Fingers from Sound Opinions. the Lawrence, Kansas band White Whale with the uh, kickoff track of their debut album, WW1. The song's called Nine Good Fingers. Uh, Greg, we originally played a different version of that that we grabbed off the band's MySpace site before the album was uh, even finished. Um, when uh, I saw them at South by Southwest and was hugely impressed by the band. I think the thing that knocked me over that night, Greg, is the uh, the different instrumentation and how they were kind of evoking an orchestral pop kind of sound with a couple of keyboards and juggling uh, guitars with a lot of effects, stuff like that. That big kind of orchestral sound, the sweeping, cinematic, very theatrical presentation. I think that uh, Suggs is channeling David Bowie in the Ziggy Stardust phase. You mentioned Ray Davies, I suppose, of the, if we were looking at the Ray Davies more conceptual stuff, definitely uh, shooting for some of that. And a lot of old school progressive rock. This mm. is a concept album. The songs are meant to be heard, uh, <laughs> not as we just play them, <laughs> divorced from the album. This is old school, man. These guys, uh, where would you find a white whale? 
Actually, I just read in the news there was one off the coast of Australia. Is just today. Right? I just read that. But where else would you find a white whale other than navigating the topographic oceans in the Sea of Tranquility <laughs> close to the edge of the dark side of the moon? Yes. Yeah, so you know, these guys are not apologizing. They're out there with Rick Wakeman. Somewhere. They are progressive rockers. <laughs> and, and But they're progressive rockers. I mean, look, the best Yes songs always had great melodies. They happen to be eight and a half minutes long. But, you know, you can sing Starship Trooper. It's mm-hmm. catchy. And it rocks. And I think that these guys are channeling that and bringing some of it back to indie rock. And it's very, very ambitious. It's not 100% successful. A few too many, you know, kind of sea shanty, like, arr, we're the admiral and the seas, you know. And it's, that's always a little <laughs> cheesy. Save it for SpongeBob. I like this record. I like its ambition. I like its epic scope. And I think it's definitely a burn it record. You should sample it and see if you dig it. I actually quite like it myself. And I'm uh, dubious about its long-term impact on me. Right now, I'm liking it quite a bit. But I can see this record becoming really cheesy really fast. I think this is a record that uh, requires you to be in a certain mindset in order to fully appreciate it. You know, I'm not quite sure what the emotional subtext is here. I'm not feeling this guy as, uh, what, what's he really singing about? What, you know, he's creating this nice story, and it's, a, and, and it's a fun story to sort of follow around. But at the same time, I don't feel like I'm being bowled over by somebody who really means it, man. You know, I want a little more meat to grip onto here. So when John Anderson of Yes sings in Roundabout, mountains come out of the sky and they stand there, that's got the kind of meat you demand, Mr. Cod? Well, there, but there was a sort of romantic, <laughs> you know, there, there's, well, the, romantic. A, there's actually kind of a cool image. It's you kind of a romantic image, you well, know? That, but that's what's going on here. He's yeah. singing about the high seas, and he's singing about romance. And at the end, he's saying it's our duty to go down with the ship, you know? And, yeah. uh, you know, there's a tragic kind of a beauty there, I suppose. You are one up on me on this band in that you did see them live. They're starting a tour in the fall here. And I'll be curious to see what White Whale is all about on the stage. Because right now, this record uh, intrigues me. Not enough to go out and say, go out and buy it. Like you, I'd say it's a burn-it record. Burn-it record. Okay. But, uh, you know, this band is, is intriguing. This is one of the more intriguing bands I've heard uh, this year. And it, it'll be interesting to see where they go with this. All because right. there's an incredible amount of musical ability going on. So here. it's a double burn-it on the uh, patented, trademarked, copyrighted sound opinions. Buy it, burn it, trash it, albums rating scale. It takes some digging. The next band, however, it's all right up front. Right in your face. Here it is. This is Slayer. Dulcet sounds of Slayer <laughs> from the new album Christ Illusion, one of the uh, the harshest death metal bands in the history of rock and roll. Death metal, of course, being uh, one of the most uncompromising sounds that the metal underground or rock period has ever produced, characterized by those growled Tom Araya vocals and the unrelenting drumming and the punishing guitars. Slayer is one of the best purveyors of that sound, and it continues to uh, to be huge in the metal underground. I mean, this is known as the pure, real deal 
as opposed to the many watered-down, gutless versions of metal. You know, it's about as extreme as you can get. Their last album, it's been almost five years, God Hates Us All, There's No Ambiguity in Slayer titles, was released uh, sort of hauntingly on September 11th, 2001. Slayer has often written and been accused of kind of exploitative outrage. You know, we're going to make the most outrageous lyrics we can. They've written from the point of view of Jeffrey Dahmer. They've written from the point of view of uh, the Angel of Death, the Nazi doctor. Joseph Mengele. Joseph Mengele. Uh, Here they are, not surprisingly, writing from the point of view on Christ's illusion of the Islamic terrorists. But there are many layers here. Let's hear some of this. The big news musically is that Dave Lombardo, who was the original drummer and a true master unbelievable master of the double bass drum thrash. I mean, that's that incredibly fast, you know, double bass drum attack. I once saw him backstage jogging in place for 15 or 20 minutes in a row. It was 100 degrees Hmm. with 15 or 20 pound weights around each ankle. Oh my God. In order to be ready to take the stage. This guy is back. He's replacing this fellow Paul Bostaff who was uh, the drummer for the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Christ Illusion, big controversy in the Walmarts of America because it's a a nasty cover but you can't fault. Slayer tells you what you're going to get. You know, the (laughs) album title, you've got uh, an amputated Christ on the cover surrounded in an ocean of blood with decapitated heads. So kids, don't think you're getting the wiggles here. Parents, maybe you want to take a look at this lyric sheet that never has a parental advisory sticker been so well warranted. And uh, here's a really good example of it. The song is called Cult from Christ Illusion by Slayer on Sound Opinions. A cult from Slayer, the new album Christ Illusion. The shock factor in the lyrics, there again, Tom Araya, right in your face. Religion is hate, religion is fear, religion is war, religion is rape, religion's obscene, religion's a whore. Okay, we get it, guys. You guys are out to, like, uh, stick a rigid middle digit in the face of uh, religious institutions everywhere. Of any stripe. They're uh, non-denominational yeah, in their offense. They're, they're atheists. They don't approve of any religion. If people are looking for a, a deeper meaning beyond that, the theme of this record is violence masquerading as holiness. Uh, yes. The whole notion of uh, religious wars, the hypocrisy of that. But I don't listen to Slayer for political science lessons. Um, the reason I think they are one of the very best American rock bands, and I, I take them out of the realm of just metal, I just just a pure, great rock band of the last 25 years, what they do with guitar, bass, and drums, I think is unequaled in the history of modern music. Nobody else plays the way Slayer does. There are other bands who are as extreme, but in terms of the virtuosity combined with the melody, combined with the sheer velocity, the loudness, the hardness, and the tempo, 
that combination makes Slayer, to my mind, one of the most thrilling bands that has ever picked up guitar, bass, and drums. It is the sweaty palm car chase through burning streets. Yeah. Like, before the city burns down, I have to make my way through the city. But see, uh, it that's, is, that's the, the visceral effect it, of this it's music. It's like watching that kind of daredevil skiing on TV yeah. as opposed to doing it. Right. Is, is listening to Slayer on album as opposed to experiencing them live. I will always prefer the live experience. Oh, you know, absolutely. So you could say, well, this is now somewhere that they've made a dozen odd albums. Do you need another? new Slayer record, I, I think the distinguishing factor with this one is the lyrics, because the, their entire career has been in large part based mm-hmm. on railing against the hypocrisy and pieties of organized religion, sure. and here they are literally talking about the world being at war now because of this. I rank them like with ACDC and the Ramones in, mm-hmm. in terms of bands that just keep making basically variations of the same record throughout their career, but it's a damn good record. It is a great you know? Yeah, it is a great and, record. And, and it's, a, and it's you know, great to hear them at such peak form. This is a buy a record, right? Oh, yeah. This is you, you, you need great that. stuff. Yeah, especially if you don't have any Slayer record, this is as good a place to start as any. And if you have any Slayer record, you probably have them all. <laughs> yes. So either way, you need this record. You don't lose. Christ Illusion, a buy it record from both of us. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. Each week on Sound Opinions, either Greg or I take a turn at popping a quarter into the desert island jukebox playing one song we could not live without for the day. Mr. Cott, it's your turn. Well, thank you, Jim. And uh, all this talk about MTV has uh, beamed me back to uh, November 93 for what I think is the shining moment in MTV history, as far as I'm concerned. And I was never more riveted than on this performance by this band, Nirvana, as part of the uh, MTV Unplugged series. And, you know, what a kind of a hokey concept. You could just tell this is a huge merchandising option for them. They launched comebacks by the Eagles when Springsteen introduced his new band uh, in the early 90s. He chose MTV Unplugged and then decided he was going to go electric. Yeah, you know? I mean, it was interesting they, stuff, it, it like LL form. Cool J kind of doing the, the, the live acoustic yeah. semi-rap band thing. It, and... it, it had some moments, but none greater than this one. Um, it was not a traditional Nirvana set that they played that day. They played some of their own songs, but they also covered some of their favorite artists, people like David Bowie and the Meat Puppets, who actually sat in on a few of the songs with the them. Vaselines. The Vaselines. Gasolines. If I had to pick a single Kurt Cobain performance that I love above all others, it would be this one. It was a version of an old Lead Belly song known variously as Where Did You Sleep Last Night or In the Pines. There's probably 160 recorded versions of this song. Cobain was introduced to the song by his friend Mark Lanigan of the uh, Seattle band Screaming Trees in 1990. Cobain was just dumbstruck by the power of this song. And its application to what was going on in his life in November of 93 was really just extraordinary. You know, the key lines in the song, My girl, my girl, don't lie to me. Where did you sleep last night? Now it's it's pretty well known that Cobain was going through a number of problems in his life at that point. His addiction to heroin, 
chronic stomach ailments. His marriage to Courtney Love, a very tumultuous relationship, was in a rocky point. Those lines really spoke to him at that moment in his life in a way that even a lead belly, I'm sure, could have appreciated. The accompaniment by the band was was so amazingly empathetic. They had a um, a guest cello player in on this session. Her name was Lori Goldstein. Those long, mournful cello lines, sort of a co- shading Cobain's voice on this song, beautifully done. Dave Grohl, one of the hardest-hitting drummers in rock history, playing with brushes on this song, doing yeah. sort of like a, a really cool jazz kind of thing yeah. uh, almost on this song. Well, ironically, now Foo Fighters, Grohl's uh, post-Nirvana band, crossing mm-hmm. the country as we speak on an acoustic tour. Grohl just uh, showing a completely different side of his playing on this song. And at the end of the song, Cobain himself is the one disappearing into the pines. He's sort of where the sun don't ever shine, where I will shiver the whole night through. And when he sings those lines, you get a shiver. I mean, it's like this guy is disappearing into the woods, maybe for the last time. That's the way he sings those lines. That scream at the end of the song is one of, you know, we've talked about this before on the show, Jim. Great rock and roll screams, great yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. shivering moments in rock and roll. Cobain's wail at the end of the song is right up there. Just ironic, though, because it's not like MTV had anything to do with this. You know, yeah. many of those unplugged <laughs> specials were rehearsed, and they would do the song several times in a row. I mean, Cobain, nobody knew what he was going to do. He hadn't run it by MTV. He hadn't run it by the band's management. Came out, and he did this. Yep. And that was it. One take. Nothing else, and it was done. So, you know, once again, if MTV would just use its cameras for good, (laughs) like more of this. But you're right, Greg. What a moment. They allowed this performance to happen. Cobain uh, was asked, uh, you know, just briefly by the MTV uh, man in charge at the time, do you want to do another song, an encore? And, And Cobain basically said, I can't top that. No. I can't do anything more he knew than it. that. And he knew it. And uh, less than five months later, Kurt Cobain killed himself. And I hate to say it, this song sort of presages that in a lot of ways. It's uh, Nirvana and Kurt Cobain covering Lead Belly's Where Did You Sleep Last Night on Sound Opinions.
Thank you. Nirvana's Where Did You Sleep Last Night. Man, powerful stuff, Greg Todd. Good Desert Island jukebox pick. No other way to go out of the MTV show, that's <laughs> yeah. for sure. Next week, Jim, looking forward to next week's show because we're going to be uh, hosting Granddaddy's singer Jason Lytle, former Granddaddy singer. It feels weird to say that. Granddaddy, one of the great bands of the last uh, seven, eight years, and uh, left us with a bunch of great records. Lytle is now on a solo tour doing some amazing versions of Granddaddy songs. We had him in the studio for a live performance and an interview. We have some thank yous to say on the way out. Tori Malatia is our executive producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Fink- Finger Spiegel is our producer. Associate producers Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana. We get some legal help from Dino Armiros. We get some technical assistance from Joe Dassault. Jim Russell over at American Public Media keeps us on the straight and narrow. And uh, thank you to our guests. It was a fun discussion. Thanks for listening.